With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation. Sounds charming. The only thing that sounds better is the radio. Well, I tune right in at midnight. But tended to the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I was open to WBZ, and uh, I'm excited about tonight because one of my favorite guests is in Robert Bob Allison, professor and chair, the proud Department of History, Suffolk University, Boston, and USS Constitution Museum Board of Trustees, member and leader of the group, Rev 250. It's a, a group that coordinates historic sites to celebrate the 250th anniversaries of events leading up to the American Revolution. How are you doing, sir? Great. How are you doing, Bradley? Uh, what are the next uh, events, Rev250 events? Well, a couple of things. We're planning to do a series of more academic things this year, looking at underrepresented voices in the American Revolution, women, African Americans, Native Americans, ways we can bring the scholarship that's been done on their contributions into curriculum, into the broader conversation, because we know about the participation of people like Prince Hall, Phyllis Wheatley, uh, Native Americans who fought on both sides in the war, the roles of women. Scholars have been working on this. How do we get this to be part of the narrative? So that's really the next step. Of course, next year, 2020, we have the uh, Boston Massacre. And also, there's actually legislation before the uh, general court to create a statewide commission, a semi-sesquicentennial commission. So uh, Senator Collins and Senator Fatman have introduced this in the Senate and uh, Representative Beal in the House to create a statewide commission. You know, Pennsylvania has created a commission, South Carolina has, and New Jersey has actually put half a million dollars in their budget every year to do commemoration. So Massachusetts needs to do some catching up since it really happened here. The revolution really happened here, and we're lagging behind on ways we can commemorate this. Uh, will they tap you to be involved? Oh, I, well, I'm willing, willing to serve. Can you hear that, folks? And that'll be good because you'll have some money to work with. That, that's very true. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so we've uh, had some really good conversations with people in the executive branch and the legislative branch about this, and we have some really good folks who are working to. They understand the importance of our history. Our history is something that really holds us together and is what makes us. So, and this is really our moment. And people, for some reason, do respond to round numbers like 250. Yeah. You know, we're excited about history when it's the 313th. But 
This is a special series of years. Next year, the 250th of the Boston Massacre. 2023, the 250th of the Boston Tea Party. So we have these opportunities really to make these big events. And 2026, we're hoping really to commemorate Evacuation Day in a big way, the 250th anniversary of the evacuation of Boston on March 17th of 1776. Well, today you agreed to talk about Henry Knox. Yes. We did uh, Cotton Mather last time. Get to all my favorite people. Henry Knox has long been a favorite of mine because I... As I shared with you, he worked with cattle, dragging those cannon from Ticonderoga here. And I understand what an enormous yep. feat that is. It really was, yeah. And he was 24 years old. And he didn't know he had been commissioned a colonel in the Army until after he was done. He set out in November of 1775. Washington had sent him to get the cannon. First, stop in New York and see if the New York Provincial Congress will loan any cannon to the cause, but New York wouldn't. They needed cannon to defend New York, and also they were sore because the Congress hadn't paid them for things they'd already supplied. So then he goes up to Fort Ticonderoga, where there are about 60 pieces of artillery that had been uh, captured when the fort was captured, and he has to arrange to get sleds and hire oxen and has to really wait until the river freezes and there's enough snow on the ground to pull these cannon across the Berkshires. It's a major feat. He and his brother, his brother's 19 years old, they set out to do this, you know, hiring, having uh, the sleds built, and he thought it would take about two weeks. He writes to Washington in uh, mid-December that by January 1st, I am going to deliver a um, noble train of artillery, and it takes him actually until mid-February to get the cannon across the Berkshire. That's a big deal. That's like elephants across the Alps type of thing. Exactly. It is. It really is phenomenal. Using Now, it's in some stretches they used horses, but it really is these oxen, these really heavy um, animals who are able to pull these enormous weights. Each cannon weighed as much as the offensive line of the New England Patriots. So you can picture how heavy each one was. How heavy? How many? What is that in pounds? That's about a ton, a little over a ton. 2,000 pounds? Yeah, something like that. And how many did he have? He had 59, a range of different sizes. So right. 59 and having to build the sled. And actually, they're also getting across, the, they have to cross the Hudson River four times to get between. Um, you know, Lake George. Because it's uh, meandering. Excuse me? Because it's looping around. It is looping around. So they have to cross. And at one point, the cannon actually falls through the ice. And the men have to dive down, tie ropes around it, and haul it out. In the winter. In the winter. (laughs) Okay. So we got the general gist of this. Now we're going to find out about the man. Let's let's back up the Wayback Machine to uh, when Henry Knox was a kid, I guess. Yeah, he's a kid. As early as you want to go, as long as it's... As early as is relevant to go. Okay, so he's born in Boston, and his father apparently had a drinking problem. Do we know where he was born? Can you go visit the house? Is it well, still? the house no longer stands. Oh, okay. There is a marker on the site. It's near South Station. Okay. And he also had a bookshop somewhere at Corn Hill, which is Washington Street, and somewhere in the general area of the old state house. He, he's um, sent to the Latin school. And after about a year, because his father had abandoned the family, he has to leave school, and he's nine years old, and is apprenticed to a bookseller, a stationery store. And by the time he's in his early 20s, he has borrowed money to buy the business. Do you know where that is? That was also in the area around the old state house. Corn Hill. Corn Hill. So somewhere 
probably near Pi Alley where all those, the other yeah. printing buildings were. Yeah, so that's where, the, yeah, exactly. So okay. between Pi Alley and between City Hall Plaza. And in fact, one of the buildings on City Hall Plaza still has a sign saying Corn Hill. That okay. was the name of that stretch of Washington Street, named for Corn Hill in London. But Henry Knox had the London Bookshop. And it became kind of a hangout for people interested in military affairs because he carried a lot of books on military science. So some of the people who came to his shop were British officers who were interested in this. And so they would hang out and talk hang out about and, military stuff? Yeah, some people say uh, that this was really the first military academy. And also some other people who were leaders in colonial militia, like Nathaniel Green came up from Rhode Island to, and would go to this bookshop. And Knox also studied books of military science. Remember, he only had a couple of years of formal education. At Boston Latin. Boston Latin. Had to leave. Had to leave. Okay. And then he, uh, Latin does claim him as an alum. In fact, if you go into their auditorium, they have the names of illustrious alumni around the, uh, um, see, around, around the upper wall. And Henry Knox is there, along with Benjamin Franklin. And Wow. They'll claim you even if you don't graduate, if you do something notable. So Knox <laughs> runs this bookshop, and he also um, is a volunteer. He has a, he's part of a, an artillery company, a militia artillery company. And on his 24th birthday, I think it was, he was out hunting in Boston Harbor in a little rowboat, and he shoots off a couple fingers of his, uh, of his hand. And he bandages it up to stop the bleeding, rows himself back to shore, and goes to his doctor. His doctor was Joseph Warren to have this tended to. And so there he is with this damaged hand, and he's uh, no longer in the artillery company, but he is marching in a parade, and he catches the eye of a young woman named Lucy Flucker. And Lucy Flucker's father was the secretary of the province. He's a big loyalist. And, wow. But Lucy well, I guess is it's just, a small world there where you could catch the eye of an important person. His Seems kind of coincidental. What? And, and, well, she then starts hanging out at the bookshop too, and she is really she and Henry wind up getting married. She's about eighteen; he is twenty-four, and the family, her family, is not happy about her marrying this guy, and who's uh, uh, not only does he seem like he's not headed anywhere to them, he's a patriot. He's on the opposite political side, and so Henry and Lucy though do get married at about the same time as he is planning a fort at Roxbury, the high, high hill in Roxbury, Fort Hill in Roxbury. Knox designs this fort, oversees its construction, doing this really as a volunteer. There are, this is around the time of Lexington and Concord. The British are occupying Boston. Big battle in uh, Lexington and Concord. Then the Continental Army, actually militia troops, surround Boston and arc from Roxbury to Cambridge. And Knox designs this fort. In the event we ever get artillery, this would prevent the British from leaving Boston. So he had this on his mind for a long time. He does have this mind. So how old is he at this point? He's about 23. Can we go back to when he was a kid and what kind of kid he was? Like, uh, I understood he was kind of a street tough type of He was a street tough kid, yeah. He is... He was uh, in in the... Hanging around for the Boston Massacre, right? He was hanging around. He was He's on the scene as these kids are attacking the sentry... And he is telling the kids to leave the sentry alone, but also telling the soldiers not to fire. That is, he's a very good witness to this because he's objective. He's definitely not on the side of the British soldiers, but he is a witness to what happens here. And he does tell the soldiers they should get off the street. He tells the kids they should get off the street. 
and he is quite alarmed at what he sees uh, at this scene. We were remarking on what a what a small world it had to be. All those guys knew each other knew each other casually, right? Yeah, Boston was a pretty hey small Sam town. Adams, what's up? What are you doing tonight? Yeah. Want to have a beer? Kind of thing, yeah, right. There are about uh, twelve thousand people in Boston, and even in the surrounding area. You know, Warren was from Roxbury, a farming town just outside Boston. So they would have uh, crossed paths. And so that's one-third of Fenway Park. Exactly, yeah, yeah. For the whole city. Yeah, yeah. You know, and John Adams knows Henry Knox. When Henry Knox is just, he's a 24-year-old volunteer. He wants to become a colonel. Adams is writing to him, and Adams is a member of Congress. You know, their paths had crossed here in Boston. Of course, Adams had been one of the lawyers at the Boston Massacre trial, so he knew Knox as a witness at the trial. And... Adams was impressed with him, and Washington is impressed with him. Washington arrives in Cambridge to take command of the army in July of 1775, and Washington is absolutely disgusted with the New Englanders. And he lives where in Cambridge? Uh, Washington lives in what now is the Longfellow House Washington headquarters. And you can, almost, still there? Still there. Yeah, and actually cool. the novelist William Martin says that if ever there's a time when walls can talk, he wants to be in that house because there's a room in that house where Washington met Benedict Arnold, Henry Knox, Benjamin Franklin, Nathaniel Green, all of these guys for the first time. And the things that would have been said in that room that then becomes, I think, Longfellow's dining room, it's really an extraordinary place. So does Washington show up and kind of just feel like he's got to meet everybody? No, Washington is actually inspecting the fortifications. So he and Charles Lee, the second-in-command, set out from Cambridge and go to Roxbury. They want to go to Dorchester Neck. And along the way, they meet Henry Knox, who is walking along the road. And Henry Knox is quite a portly fellow. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And Knox says, I want to show you the fortifications I've built. And so Washington so far has been absolutely disgusted with the New Englanders. Cambridge is filthy because these soldiers, they're doing us a favor by being here. And these guys are camping out, having a good time. They don't want to dig latrines or do anything like that. Plus, New Englanders then had a phobia about bathing. So the place is filthy. And these guys also like to fire off their guns for fun. And Washington knows they're short of gunpowder. So nothing about New England has impressed him. But then Henry Knox says, let me show you this fortification I've built. And Washington is really impressed because here is a guy who understands military science. Here's a guy who understands how you build a fort, even if you don't have artillery. It's well designed. And Washington immediately sees that Knox is someone he wants to make more of. So he begins lobbying Congress to make Knox a colonel in charge of the artillery. The uh, Richard Gridley was the uh, guy in charge of artillery. He now is ill. He had been in charge of the artillery at Bunker Hill, which is why the Gridley locks are at, uh, on the Charles River. But Gridley is really out of commission. Washington wants Knox to take his place. And so Washington tells Congress, you've got to make Henry Knox a colonel. It must have been really fun for Henry Knox, who's pretty much a hobbyist before he met with yeah, Washington, yeah. right? He, it was his hobby. I'm going to build a fort. Yes. And then all of a sudden, this, this the man is there, and yeah. he can he can show, like... Yes. It's like 
if you have some little project in high school and you get to show Einstein your project, that's and true. he well, says, oh, my God, that's a great project. If you're, it's a, if you're it's a, a great project, more often than not, it's going to be a lousy project. Right. So far, nothing Washington has seen has impressed him, but Knox does. And then it's a good news, bad news proposition when Washington tells Knox, you're going to be in charge of all the artillery. The good news is you're in charge. The bad news is the artillery is 300 miles away, and you have to go get it, which Knox then sets out to do. Knox was up for it, right? He was. He, he didn't he, go, oh, my God. He went, I'm, okay, I'm all about this because he's got a chance to make good. Yeah, but on the other hand, he knows he and Lucy now is pregnant with uh, what will be their first child. So he's worried about that. Plus, her parent, her family are loyalists. And now Knox and Lucy are on the other side. And she never sees her parents again. After, you know, Henry Knox, he's leaving to go out to Fort Ticonderoga. He takes her to Worcester where he thinks she'll be safe. And then he sets out on this venture with his brother, and you don't know how this thing is going to go. It's really something uncertain. Yeah, it is a great opportunity, but an opportunity also presents the danger this is going to be a disaster. A picture, and trying to picture everything. Would he have taken his wife out on like a horseback, or would they have had a carriage? They probably would have had a carriage, because she's pregnant. So he probably would have found a carriage for her to ride in. Knox walked a lot because no horse could carry him. He was a heavy guy. In fact, one day he walked from Washington's headquarters in Cambridge to Dorchester Heights in what's now South Boston, then walked back, and then he did this twice in one day, walking between Cambridge and South Boston because you couldn't really find a horse. In fact, every battle he goes into during the course of the Revolution, he goes on foot. Man, uh, how heavy was he? He weighed about 300 pounds at his prime. And Lucy also was quite heavy. It was said, uh, Knox becomes the first Secretary of War in Washington's administration. Wow. It was said that he and Lucy were the heaviest cabinet couple. Also probably the best life. Okay. So he goes up with uh, just his brother. Yes. He rides up to, yes. to Ticonderoga to see what's up. But first yes. he stopped and talked to the New Yorkers and said, can you lend us some, yeah, ca- yeah, and some cannon? No. And they said, no, we need it. goes up to Ticonderoga. Yeah. And how far up is that? Well, that's all. You have to go up the Hudson River to uh, pass Saratoga, and then you go to what had been uh, Fort Edward, and then there's about a 13-mile walk to Lake George, and then he gets in a boat at Lake George, and there's about a 20-mile ride up Lake George to Fort Ticonderoga, where there are these uh, this artillery, and then he's also supervising at. Fort Edward, or actually at Lake, the foot of Lake George, he's supervising the building of sleds to carry these things. The cannon are going to come by boat. His brother is going to take them by boat on bateau, which are these kind of big boats. You have to have a boat strong enough to carry a ton of artillery and haul that the 20 miles down along the lake. And he goes back to the foot of the lake. He's overseeing the building of the sleds. And then he's worried that the lake is going to freeze before his brother gets here with the cannon. And his brother has, you know, several dozen of these bateaux as of like a flotilla that he's bringing down the lake. It's a huge undertaking because you have to build these things. You have to build the boats. You have to build the sleds. You have to hire the oxen. He's going to get oxen that are going to help haul okay. the cannon first to Albany and then from Albany... Uh, over to Springfield in Massachusetts, and then from Springfield to Framingham. And all along the way, of course, he has to get fresh oxen. He has to uh, hope the sleds make it, because you're venturing across the Berkshires. You're doing, you have to 
uh, bring them down the lake, and then come down. You actually, they have to actually have to cross the Hudson River four times, yeah. and they're waiting for the river to be frozen so they can get these things across. So, how many guys, men? I'm guessing they were men. Do they have to hire to do this? They hired a couple of dozen. You know, Washington had given him some continental currency to hire guys, and the guys, of course, know. Knox needs us, and he needs our oxen, so the price goes up. Yeah. And price for forage for the oxen and price for anything that Knox and his brother want to eat. I mean, the prices go up because there's now a demand for yeah. the oxen and for the Only sleds. two dozen, 24 pe- men? I, how do you do lug well, 60 also, cannon with yeah. 24 guys? Well, the oxen are quite strong. And you also, okay, so the men who are really critical in this are t- the Teamsters. They're yeah. the ones you're hiring the others, you're using the local militia. Guys who are in the local militia, you can get to volunteer to do this, although ultimately the militia are going to want to be paid by their town or by the province for any service they are doing. So you can rely on that kind of work. But also local farmers who have oxen, you know, that's really where you're going for this. It's, right. It would be the, similar to today if someone may have pickup trucks. So how cars. many oxen would it I'm guessing it'd take two teams of oxen, to four oxen to hire... Lug one of those heavy yes. cannon. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't lug them all at the same time. I'm guessing. Otherwise, you'd actually. need 240 oxen. It was a train of oxen. Yes. So you are actually doing this procession of these oxen. at the same time. Yes. So you needed about 240 of them. You did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, quite an astonishing thing to think about it that way. And when they're crossing the Hudson River, roughly uh, somewhere near Albany. The river has to be frozen enough, and people are watching this, and the Teamsters have to walk kind of slowly because if the oxen are walking quickly, it's going to pound on the ice and make it break. So everyone's watching this, and they applaud when each team of oxen gets across uh, on their on their sleds across this frozen river, and then they begin their trek from the Hudson River to the Berkshires and having to haul them up the mountains and then also down the mountains. The oxen have to really steady the cannon so they don't just run down the mountain and roll over and do this over and over again, getting over these hills or through the passes in the hills. And the, and the ice only broke one time? One time. One of the cannon fell through, and the men had tied ropes to it. So men actually have to dive down, tie ropes around this cannon, and then haul it out. Some of the townspeople come to help out as okay. well. That kind of blows my mind. Now, how did they – so you have a rope tied yes. to the oxen. Yeah. The oxen, I don't know if they're on the ice. It's probably snow – on the on the ice, but there's the rope comes up and it's on the edge of the ice. Mm-hmm. They have a pulley or something or a log there. Uh, they couldn't just drag it up yeah. on the edge of the ice. It was they? actually it was fairly. This one that fell through was fairly close to the edge of oh. the river, so they're just pulling pull it, it up out. onto the shore. You didn't yeah, have to yeah. you didn't pull have it to, out of a hole. No, in the you ice. didn't have to do that. It would okay. have been much more difficult. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So sure. boy, yeah, I feel feel like we've just done that. Just uh, holding. I know. I get tired just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. So there's a train. I'm trying to imagine how long, 240, mm-hmm. too wide. That's about 180 times the length of cannon and cattle. It had to be half a mile long or something? Probably, probably. I mean, it makes quite an impression. And when they get to um, some of these small towns, it's quite an event having this artillery. So I think it's in Greenfield that Knox has one of the cannon fired to kind of entertain the townspeople. That's cool. Yeah, because they'd never seen a cannon before, so he's – puts on a demonstration of it. And it's also a way of building morale, showing we're doing I would, something. I know. Yeah. And you have this uh, suddenly this train of artillery. 
One place they don't go, though, if you saw the uh, John Adams HBO series, they have the noble train of artillery going past John Adams' house in Quincy, which they don't do. That would do. be on the other side. Yeah, that would be on the other side. I mean, we know the geography enough to know you're not going to go by way of Quincy to get from Springfield to Framingham. So why would they do that? Well, for dramatic effect. You know, you want to show this somehow, so you have to put it in. So They could have at least had John Adams walking around yeah. over there, which was yes. possible. It, well, Adams actually does come to see it in Framingham. He and Elbridge Gary happen to be having dinner when Knox and the train arrive. And so Adams and Gary go to look at all this cannon. Because they're, you know, Boston is occupied. And so uh, Gary and Adams are both in the Continental Congress, and they happen to be in Framingham or in that area. So they go out to look at the cannon when it arrives. And Adams, of course, is really impressed, as is Gary, as would anyone be. I would think so. Now, I, I didn't realize that they also got powder and ball. Did they bring ball? Cannonballs. They did as well? have to. Yeah, they needed these things. They didn't have a whole lot of cannonballs, and that was one of. And also, they don't have a lot of powder. In fact, they know they don't really have enough power powder to make these things effective, nor enough cannonballs. So they have to. Um, one thing Washington is very good at is fooling, fainting what he really has. So he puts some of the cannon at. Uh, he actually has, in addition to the cannon, logs that are painted black. Yeah. So from a distance, they're going to look like cannon. And then he puts some of the cannon at Leechmere Point, roughly where Leechmere Point is now, and some at Cobble Hill, which is now in Somerville, and others in Roxbury, and has them firing. And this deceives the British into thinking he's preparing to attack across the back bay from either um, Leechmere Point or from Cobble Hill, that is attacking Bunker Hill by way of um, what's now Somerville when actually he's planning to attack from Dorchester Heights. He's planting to fortify Dorchester Heights. Yeah, he's not planning place. to attack. He, he just wants to scare them, right? Washington actually is planning to attack. His idea is once the British, um, we, Washington really wants to lead an attack across the back bay. Congress also wants him to do this because Congress doesn't like the idea of an army just sitting around. And Washington as a general, Washington really thought – he knew about Bunker Hill, the devastating effect it had on the British, and he thought, if I could just have one battle like that, it would convince the British public to give up the war. So what he really wants to do, he, and he knows once the British see the fortifications on Dorchester Heights on March the 5th, they're going to come out of Boston, try to seize Dorchester Heights, and once they do that, he's going to go across the Back Bay and invade Boston from the Back Bay by way of the common. And that's really his plan. And fortunately, uh, a big storm blows up, and when General Howe tries to seize Dorchester Heights, his boats can't land, and Washington also is unable to attack by way of Cambridge. He kept wanting to attack. His generals kept telling him, we really can't attack because one, if the British now are prepared for us. Bunker Hill, they really weren't expecting it. Now they are. And if we do get into a direct fight with the British, we're likely to lose. So... How many of the 200 and, oh, excuse me, the 60 cannon went up to Dorchester Heights? Probably about a dozen or so, because others go to Leechmere Point and to uh, the High Fort in Roxbury or to Cobble Hill. And so you're trying to encircle the British, and you have other cannon at other strategic points. And then one purpose of fortifying Dorchester Heights was to cover putting another little fortification at Nook Hill, which is also in South Boston, roughly near the corner of uh, C and Broadway, or B and Broadway in South Boston. There was another hill, no longer exists. And that gives you direct, uh, direct cannon range into downtown Boston. 
And so you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You have these cannon at Dorchester Heights, maybe a dozen or so up hauled up there. Uh, it took about 700 men to put those fortifications up because not only did they have to haul these cannon up, but they had to haul up all of the fortifications they had built. The breastworks? Brett, the breastworks. What is, what is that? A the, sticks and a sort of fence? Yeah, it is like a fence. And also, Made out of uh, chopped down yeah. alder trees. Another and... purpose of firing all the cannon was to disguise the noise that you're making by cutting down all these trees in Dorchester and Roxbury to build these fortifications. Bunker Hill was in June. They were able to dig in. Dorchester Heights, they're doing this in late February, early March. The ground is pretty solid. So they have to build all these things. So it is these essentially fences or they're like troughs because then you're going to fill those troughs with rocks. So all of that has to be hauled up by oxen as well. So the fence is in a zigzag it pattern? Is a, kind of in a zigzag. And then you fill those zigs and zags with rocks? Yes, yeah, do. And another thing you bring, you have um, hoops of rope that you call uh, barrels, and those are also filled with rocks, and that forms another part of the fortification. Also, if someone is climbing the hill to attack, you push those down, and they're going to roll down and knock down anybody who's trying to climb the hill. Can the cannon hit any of the British ships from from there? Yeah, they could hit probably the ships that are in the harbor. In fact, that's the first thing the British admiral sees, is you have all of these ships now that are Expensive ships, a lot of guys on them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they don't want that to happen. So the British admiral tells General Howe, uh, we really can't stay here because now we're in range. And, of course, the ships can't fire up at a steep enough angle yeah, to hit right. the forts. So being the, on a hill, that's what yeah, being on yeah. a hill is all about. Exactly. I guess. It is, yeah, the height. Can you drill down on what happened on that day on March 17th? March 17th is the day of the British evacuation. Yeah. Yeah. So it actually, it's a process. The British... The British had realized that Boston was untenable. If they want to win back the loyalty of the American people, Boston isn't the place to do it from because they thought the New Englanders were all deluded religious fanatics. and so Still are. They still are, yeah. <laughs> Different kinds of religion, but yes. And, and always sure of themselves, smug. And uh, so they thought if we go to a place like New York where people are more reasonable, they'll want to be – um, they want to remain loyal in New York and in Philadelphia and in South Carolina and Georgia. But New England, let's leave the New Englanders to fight it out because inevitably they will kill each other because uh, they can't get along with anybody. So the idea of the British was we should leave Boston, but we can't just leave because in the spring of 1775, the British send over this huge army. And you can't send over a huge army to pacify a place and then say, well, you know what, we're going to leave Boston. So they need some kind of a pretext, and actually the placing of the cannon at Dorchester Heights is part of this. But also it's an understanding, you know, you can't really hold Boston, and eventually the New Englanders might come to their senses once they've started killing each other. So you have the British kind of wanting to leave, but not being able just It kind of gave them an excuse to leave. It does give them an excuse to leave. Anyway, on March the 4th, uh, General John Thomas has the cannon taken to Dorchester Heights, 
And the next day, the British realize that they're now within cannon range, and they begin making preparations to leave. And um, the rebels fortify Nook Hill, and actually a couple of men are killed. In the, they make noise as they're fortifying Nook Hill, and the British fire on them. And during this time, there's a smallpox epidemic going on in Boston. The town's population has fallen. And the British in Boston haven't had any access to fresh food or firewood. This is why they're knocking down houses. They knock down Cotton Mather's old church. They tear up church pews, mainly for firewood. I mean, you spend the winter in Boston without firewood, you're going to start looking at churches and shingles and shutters differently. Isn't this when they when they gutted the, I should ask, is this when they gutted the South Meeting House? Yes, this is when they gutted the, and the South Meeting House also, they used as a uh, riding stable, and they had a nice bar set up in the gallery so they could watch equestrian up demonstrations. Above, in before. the balcony? Yeah, yeah. And this is why Washington said when he comes into Boston after the British evacuate how they've desecrated this house of worship. Yeah. And, yeah, Old South still is sore about it. The British saw Old South as a seat of sedition anyway. So they were so happy to defile it. They were happy to defile it, just like they used Fan- Faneuil Hall was the town meeting house, and they used it as a playhouse. The theater is illegal in Boston. Speaking of people being religious fanatics, theater was illegal, so the British do put on theatrical performances at Faneuil Hall, and there's one theatrical performance they have where there's a character, Washington, who has enormous wooden teeth and carries a wooden sword, and someone comes into the playhouse when this play is being put on and says, Bunker Hill's being attacked. And everyone thinks it's part of the show. They laugh. And it turns out the rebels actually are attacking Bunker Hill. It's not the Battle of Bunker Hill, but it's another foray to Bunker Hill. But anyway, the British on March 4th, March 5th, realize they can't storm the heights and take them. So at some point, the chairman of the Boston Board of Selectmen makes his way to the line at Boston Neck, the connection between Boston and Roxbury, and he has a letter to send to General Washington saying, I overheard General Howe say that if the rebels don't attack us on the way out, we won't burn the town before we oh, leave. Oh, good. And Washington says this is not an official communication, so he can't take any recognition of it. However, now he knows the British are planning to leave. So he's watching carefully, and you can see the British troops at Castle Island going downtown to help with the packing up of things. And General Howe has kind of a big problem. He has about 10,000 troops he has to get out of town, but also he has about 1,000 loyalists. They wouldn't. You know, they weren't nervous that we would let loose with a few cannonballs? Well, we did. We did before they actually start preparing to leave. And they, they, you know, this message Washington had gotten, don't fire on us, we won't burn the town. And so Washington knows they're, watch, is watching, knowing they're prepared to leave. And then they do, but then it takes them about a week or two after that, actually, to clear the harbor. They drop down to Castle Island, and they're waiting for tide and uh, wind, and then they're off Nantasket for about a week. So they're still in the area, and you don't know, are they going to come back? And, and by the way, Washington's camp, speaking of um, codes, the sentry would challenge you if you are coming in, and you had to know the countersign. And the challenge the sentry would give that week was Boston. And you had to know the countersign, which was St. Patrick. Really? Yes. Uh, the new That's pretty cool. 17th of March. You know, Folks, don't you, don't you love to kind of make that direct connection from hundreds of years ago yeah. to this week kind right. of, or this yeah. month? That's right. Okay, so it's so the 17th, and they packed up, and they're kind of leaving. And yeah. What did uh, Knox do? 
actually like on the 17th and 18th after as they were leaving well he's well washington is watching as they leave and he sees okay they've pulled their forces to long wharf they're boarding their transports in the harbor they're preparing to leave and he sends a couple of uh scouts down through charlestown to bunker hill and these guys see that at the foot of the hill there still are two british sentries so they don't know why are these guys still there so they very carefully go down to the sentry post, and there are two dummies wearing British uniforms. Oh. And they're holding a sign that says, Welcome, Brother Jonathan. Jonathan was a name that the British gave to any New Englander. It was called a Jonathan. It's kind okay. of a rube. Similar Why? to Yankee Doodle. What's that and, from? Well, a lot of New Englanders were named Jonathan, and it's kind of a name for one of these pious New Englanders. It's a, it is a very pious New England name. And so Brother Jonathan is, you know, here you are. We're welcoming you to this hill. And then Washington is not going to march into Boston. He doesn't want the people to start going into Boston because there's a smallpox outbreak. So first, if you have never had smallpox, you're not allowed to go into Boston. And then Washington is also very conscious of the fact that the general in charge of Massachusetts troops was Artemis Ward, and Washington had replaced him. But Washington has Artemis Ward, who was the head of the Massachusetts provincial militia, go into Boston with troops. To yeah, he's not Washington. Kind of throws him a bone. Yeah, he's, yeah. And Washington knows he's not he's not a commanding general conquering Boston. We're restoring civil authority mm-hmm. in Boston. This is a legitimate government being restored here. And the British also had put what they called crow's feet along Boston Neck. These are twisted bits of iron that are going to slow down horses or anyone trying to walk, pass along what's now Washington Street. So those have to be cleared away. And then Knox goes into Boston and he sees his bookstore is a shambles. The windows have been broken, the books have been scattered, and the British actually had packed up a lot of stuff and taken it. They raided some warehouses. Some places fare better than others. John Hancock's house is pretty much untouched. There had been, I think it was General Clinton occupied Hancock's house, and he actually took an inventory of everything that was there when he arrived and everything that was there when he left. So you could see no other people were less scrupulous. I mean, they're going to loot things. The British had also destroyed a lot of their cannon and other things so the rebels couldn't get them. They actually dumped a lot into the harbor, not wanting these things to fall into the rebels' hands. And they also blew up the lighthouse at Boston Light, on their way out. They really, it's a mixed bag, whether they're protecting John Hancock's property or destroying Henry Knox's bookshop. Boston Light. No, there's there's a lighthouse, yes. Boston Light now, correct? That is 1713. It's the oldest lighthouse in the country. And some of the stone in the current lighthouse were used in that original lighthouse in 1713. So they blew it up, but you just build it back up. They built it back. Yeah, a, yeah. They, the stone they you know put back you're up. You're mason it up again and put a new yeah, light in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Evacuation day, and we've gotten to evacuation day. The British are leaving now. Where do they go, and why do they go there? And Well, the British go to Halifax, Nova Scotia. They're on their way to New York, but General Howe has this problem about a 1,000 loyalists who want to leave with him, including Lucy Knox's parents and family. She never sees them again. They all leave on evacuation day, and they go first to Halifax and then to England. And the British, though, are on their way to New York. And in fact, by the end of March, Washington has sent Knox on his way to New York with the cannon. Mount Washington is very much a detailed, in many ways, a micromanager. When he's sending orders, he's very specific about what to do. 
with Knox, he just tells him, you know, get the cannon to New York because he knows Knox is able to do this. I mean, right. Knox had brought the cannon from Fort Ticonderoga. So Knox uh, is now in charge of the artillery unit, which is about 600 men who are going to haul these cannon with oxen down to New York. And Knox and Lucy head for New York, where he is now going to be in charge of trying to protect New York from a British invasion, which comes in July at about the same time Washington has his troops assembled in lower Manhattan to have the Declaration of Independence read to them. They see this huge British force unloading at Staten Island, the biggest fleet the British have ever sent across the Atlantic. They went up to Nova Scotia first. They go to Nova Scotia Because they first. need to drop off they loyalists? Drop off the loyalists because, you know, they're just kind How of— How long did that take? It took a, a few weeks. Yeah, it took— Yeah, so they leave Boston probably the end of March, and they arrive in New York in July. And they started arriving probably a little earlier, so— they, I mean, they also have to get more from Europe, more troops coming from Europe. And in fact, the king had tried, you know, there aren't enough people in England to raise an army, and the war isn't that popular in England. It's expensive. It is an expensive thing. It's like so, Vietnam for them. It is, yeah. And so the king first wants to get Russians. He thinks Russians would be perfect for America because they don't speak the language. They're really tough. They're good in cold just, weather. And they work cheap. Yeah, yeah. And Catherine the Great said it would. she didn't want to insult the king by suggesting he couldn't put down his own rebellions. So the king turns to the states in Germany. Remember, he's also the elector of Hanover. Troops from Hanover are sent to the British fortifications in the Mediterranean. The British troops then there are sent to America. And then a couple of the other German states like Hesse and Bavaria and Ansbach, um, there, they're conscript soldiers, basically. We'll pay the prince so much for each soldier he sends. So if you're the prince in one of these places, you get money for every guy you send over. And it doesn't matter much if the guy lives or dies. If the guy dies, actually, you get more. And so you are making out as a prince in Germany, not so much if you're one of these German peasants who's now conscripted into this army to go to America. The Americans recognize this. Actually, they print up little cards in German that are put into tobacco into tobacco pouches sold in New York about the benefits you'll get if you desert from Yeah, and say, what are you doing fighting for these guys? That's right, yeah, yeah. And some of the Brit Germans who are captured at Trenton, you know, 900, this is in December of 1776, one of the most dramatic moments. We've skipped over New York, which is a disaster for the Americans because we don't have a navy to cope with this British fleet. And essentially the British... You know, Washington's army is in New York, Manhattan, but he also has an army in Brooklyn, and the Brooklyn army is going to be overwhelmed because the British simply move on to Long Island and take Brooklyn that way. And Washington is able to get his troops across from Brooklyn into Manhattan, but then things are disastrous in Manhattan. So I want to slow down and yes. talk about that in more detail. So the British go up, drop off people at Nova Scotia, which is not a big event. They just drop them off, say goodbye, get some supplies probably, yeah. head directly from New York, and Washington knew that they'd be going there. Yes. yes. So he, while they're on the way to Nova Scotia, he's got Knox mm -hmm. going down to New York with the yeah. cannon or yeah. something. Did he yeah. take them all? All the yeah, cannon? most of them. Some of them he leaves just to defend Boston mm -hmm. in case the British come back. And was it an easier trip? It was now... It's much easier, and the roads are better. The roads are better. Yeah, we have better roads. It's a main thoroughfare. Yeah, it is a main thoroughfare. <laughs> so it's not a big— So they had them on wheels now. They're on wheels. So it's not a big difficulty to 
do that. You're also not doing it in secret because there aren't, you know, okay. British raiders. They already know in. that yeah. Yeah. we have the king. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I read, a, I think it was a book on Washington about the preparations they made in New York and how the preparations were blown apart in like an hour. Yeah. yeah. They, I remember there were, they set up these forts along the, the river? Yeah, the Hudson. They put chain between them to keep they, the ships from It just from didn't work. Up. Yeah, nothing worked. And they, it was a waste of time, and it was a disaster. It was. And this is where the, uh, during, on a foggy night, very yes. fortuitously, yeah. it was yeah. foggy, and they had to get the yeah. troops across. Of course, another Massachusetts guy, John Glover, is yeah. responsible for Talk that. Talk about he that did. a little bit. Yeah, so Glover, Glover is also, in many ways, the founder of the Marines. He, Washington sends him down to Philadelphia in November of 1775 to recruit Marines, which he does, and a Marine force. And so Glover's guys are the ones who are in charge of rowing the army across the East River. You know, and Washington has campfires burning at Fort Greene in Brooklyn, making the British think we're digging in, we're preparing to fight you when you attack. But actually, Washington is getting his army across the East River. In little rowboats. In little rowboats. Going very close to the British fleet, but quietly. In uh, yeah. Quietly in the fog. Yeah. And, they and, could probably hear the ships. Yeah. And Washington is the last one to leave. He, wait, he gets everyone into the boats across. So he's saving his army. Washington is coming to realize... The British can hold New York. The British can hold Philadelphia, which they will. He has to keep the army intact to keep fighting. He just needs to win through attrition. And win through attrition. And also he has to maintain the loyalty of the American people. Yeah. So that's really the trick for Washington is maintaining the loyalty of the American people and keeping his army together. And almost doesn't work. The army can't hold on to New York. New York is burned. And Washington's army is pushed across New Jersey, retreats across New Jersey. There are about 30,000 men in the army at New York. By the time they reach the banks of the Delaware, there are about 3,000. It's now the end of December. They go well, from what number to what number? 30,000 to 3,000. And a lot of them just split and yeah, said, we're done. done. We're done. This isn't going to work. And as you get to the crossing of the Delaware and that attack on it was wasn't that done in December because yes. their their hitch was up there, yeah and they didn't have the money to pay for them again so they had That's to right. move up the well, schedule. Washington knew that these men are going to disappear at the end of the month and he can't stop them, but he also knows if they don't do something, no one is going to sign up in the spring. Right, and so the revolution is going to be over. Washington's goal has been keep the army together, but now the army is disappearing of its own volition, so he has to do something dramatic. So he plans this. He's going across the Delaware. He actually got all of the boats from the east side of the Delaware, take, took them over to Pennsylvania so the British couldn't follow him. And the British put Hessian troops in the camp at Trenton. They're occupying Trenton as well as Princeton. And then most of the British Army goes to New York, and they're packing up to go back to England because the revolution is over. They figure that's it. Yeah, Cornwallis is on a ship getting ready to go back to England when Washington comes across the Delaware on Christmas night, Washington and Knox. Knox brings the cannon across the Delaware. Washington had planned for three different units to cross the Delaware, and they synchronize the time they're going to do this. He, his is the only one that makes it. The others decide we can't get it across. Washington, Washington had written the, the code word for this operation was victory or death. <laughs> And, okay. and, and so they get in, you know, and so Knox places the cannon at either ends of the main street, and they so Knox, you know, Knox is the only group that made it over. The Knox and Washington, okay. yeah. And so they get there, uh, and they 
surprise the Hessians. It's early in the morning. One of the myths is the Hessians were drunk. Not true. These guys were pretty good soldiers. And so they are taken by surprise. And about 900 of them surrender. And then they're simply told, you know, we don't have a prisoner of war camp. Just leave. We march south. And they go to Maryland, Virginia, and a lot of them wind up staying. I know people whose ancestors are here because they were captured at Trenton. So they take their weapons away. They 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 rendered them unusable as troops. Yeah, and then also the Hessians on their way across New Jersey had done a lot of looting. So Washington posts notices in the New Jersey papers. If you are missing property, because these guys are preparing to go back to Germany, and they've taken clocks. I don't know why you would need a clock if you're from Germany, but right. stuff they've looted. If you've lost any property here, it's in Trenton, you can come and get it. So he's really? returning stuff to the civilians in New Jersey. Remember, New Jersey was a loyal, loyal to the crown until the crown's army marches through New Jersey and really brutalizes the population. Mm-hmm. Because the Germans think these people are rebels and we don't like rebels where we're from. So we, whatever we do is fair game. So they told them to march south on the chaperone? Just no, go. they were chaperoned. Oh, they go are. to Virginia, go to Maryland, and there are towns where they are put up. Were they, you know, shackled? Were they? No, no. They're, then they're held, you know, they can be exchanged, or sometimes you call it, you're, it's a parole of honor. Okay, you're not going to fight anymore, so you have this parole of honor. Sometimes when uh, Burgoyne's army is captured at Saratoga in 1777, they call this a convention army because they sign a convention. Okay, you guys, you'll march to Boston, and then you'll get a ship that'll take you to England eventually because we don't have the wherewithal to keep you, and we can't keep 3,000 men. We don't want to kill you, yeah, but we can't yeah, keep you. Exactly. The British, on the other hand, do have these big old prison uh, ships that they have in New York Harbor that are prison ships, and a lot of guys go on them and die. And the British also take people across the ocean to prisons in England. But, you know, we don't, didn't, hadn't built big enough prisons yet to accommodate the hmm. prisoners of war. I'm trying to understand the procession. How many of these nine, 900 or so Hessians who have been disarmed are chaperoned by how many people? They're not that many because you can't spare that many guys. And these so guys aren't going to— tied gonna, up or anything? How, no, how come no. they just wouldn't run away or overwhelm the few people that were with them? Well, because why would they? I mean, they really didn't want to be here. They're not really getting paid. The guy who has, uh, their prince is getting paid, but they're not. And here you say, okay, look, here you can get cheap land. All right. You can go to work for someone. You can become an American. Exactly. Exactly. That's what what the goal is. Okay. And remember, about a third of the population in Pennsylvania speaks German as their first language. Right. As well as in Maryland. So you have already a German population here. The advantage the British had seen in the Russians was uh, no one in America speaks Russian, but there are German speakers in America. So, yeah, you can become part of this society. All right. Again, this this attack, it was it was waged by only one third of the remaining army. There were three thousand. So two thousand didn't make it. Only one thousand of uh, the the Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Defeated the nine hundred Hessian troops who were kind of crack troops. That's what they did for a living. These ragtag people beat the professionals mm-hmm. based solely upon surprise. Surprise is the big element here. They just and didn't. No one's expecting. We this were pointing the gun at would, them, and they yeah, were in yeah. their underwear, and that was yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, but then of course, uh, word gets back to New York, and so Cornwallis gets off his boat. He brings his army across New Jersey. So by early January, his army is preparing to demolish Washington's army at Trenton. And the story is that Washington and his troops are on one side of this little, the Assunpunk River, which is just south of Trenton. Now I guess it's in the middle of Trenton. 
and Cornwallis and his army are on the other side, and Cornwallis has a conference with his generals who they all say we should attack. But Cornwallis's men have just marched across New Jersey, and he says, we have the old fox trapped. We'll go bag him tomorrow. Really? Now, meanwhile, in Washington's council of war, uh, someone says, I was just talking to a local. It tells me there's this back road where we can go around this British force and attack the rear of the British army at Princeton. So Washington and his arm, first they leave the campfires burning at their front lines, and they make all they have the guys there make as much noise as they can. The rest of the army takes this very icy back road, and so at dawn the next morning, when Cornwallis is preparing to attack Washington's army at Trenton, all of a sudden he hears gun, guns firing in Princeton to the rear, and he realized Washington's army has broken through there and is attacking the rear. And during this attack, Washington leads the men. He's riding his white horse, leading his men to go and attack this British position. And one officer says he closed his eyes so he would not have to see Washington fall. He knew that someone was going to shoot Washington, but no one does. And Washington and his forces actually blow a, a cannon, blows a hole through Nassau Hall at Princeton. And as again, Knox had brought the artillery to attack the British rear. And then Cornwallis has to turn his army around and they pursue Washington across New Jersey, and Washington uh, moves north into the mountains to the town of Morristown, which he makes his, then his headquarters. Both of these armies are now exhausted. Neither one wants to keep fighting. Cornwallis goes back to New York. Washington's at Morristown, and once again, the old fox has escaped. And won this time. And this won. was the yeah. first actual win, right? Well, Boston was the first oh, actual yes. win. This but was this the first is, actual battle one. Yeah, 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 at Princeton, when Washington really turns this, escapes from the British at Trenton and attacks at Princeton. So I'm trying to understand how the surprise would be so effective. And you talked about turning the army around because he yeah. came from the back. You actually, it was a big project. It is. Turning the army around and turning the cannon around. Turning everything around, the oxen. There, yeah. Which a, would take like a half a day. It could, it could right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're preparing to go one way and then suddenly everyone has to turn. And it's not just everybody turns around. You have to move the units around so that they're all facing the right way. Wow. If you like local, if you like military history, if you like New England, if you like revolutionary history. Again, we like to keep it local when we can. And this is the revolution is real local. As you said, Robert, it mostly happened here. It happened here. Thank you. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.